Don't you ever take for granted the privilege of getting to go to church. That's under attack. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I am your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a fascinating subject to cover today, but first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms with all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Take a look at our fan page on Facebook when you type in at Our Mighty Fortress. That page is growing more and more every day, and we'd love to have you. You can also visit our website at OurMightyFortress.com. There, if you feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through the website and the established PayPal link. If we've helped you in some way through this work, please be sure to tell us at OurMightyFortress at gmail.com. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I want to talk about the almighty God of the universe and his divine name. There's a lot of confusion over this subject, and it doesn't take but a simple YouTube search to see all sorts of opinions on the matter. That being said, there's a lot of heresy out there about this, especially by the cults of today. I don't just want to be another opinion. Rather, I want to dig into the Hebrew and the Greek word usage, and I want to be able to present the overall plan of God in this study. When we understand this, then the way that God moves through history becomes that much more evident. It also clears up the issue about his name. This is going to be an in-depth Bible study, but there's tremendous meat here for the Christian we're going to go down real deep and come up with some amazing treasures, and it's going to be an awesome journey. The first thing I do want to start with and say is that as Christians, we have to instill in our minds that everything God does, tells us to do or not to do, has a perfect rhyme and reason to it. This will greatly affect how you view God through the Bible, and you'll begin to see his grand master plan when you understand this. I hope that I'm able to capture your attention with this and your desire to know the Almighty God and His grand plan. With that introduction, let's get right into this. I want to start with a few scriptures to help build the foundation for this study. The first set of scriptures is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. It says, quote, 
Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let him, that them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known unto them. The next scripture is in the book of Psalms 138 and verse 2. It says, quote, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for all thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. End quote. Now, when you think about the passage that's in the book of Exodus, this has caused some confusion over time, and there's a lot that have stood puzzled at the statement that God made here. He said that believers before Moses did not know God's name. Think about that for a moment. Then it says in the book of Psalms, the other passage we read, his word is magnified over his name. So what is God trying to show us here? The first part we're going to see is that we're going to see his divine name revealed. When the Bible says that before Moses, the people of God didn't know his name, there are some implications with this. Think about that for a minute. From the time that Adam and Eve were created to Enoch, to Noah, to through the flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through 400 years of slavery in, in Egypt, believers did not know the name of the one true and living God. Is that not something? Adam and Eve did not know God's actual name. If they did not know his divine name, then what did they call him? There are a few names or titles that man generally responded with that we have recorded in the scriptures. First, we see the general word for God in the Old Testament with the Hebrew words El or Elohim. Elohim is the plural form of El, and the I am at the end in Hebrew is very similar to placing an S at the end of English words to make it plural. That's not always the case, but generally that is, that is what happens. We actually see that this word used in ancient languages like the early Babylonian, uh, also Phoenician, Aramaic, and also with ancient Hebrew. We see first that in verse 3 of our first text that he was called Almighty God, or in Hebrew, El Shaddai. Now, eventually, the nation of Israel would call him also Adonai, which means Lord in Hebrew. In Greek, later on, the divine name of God is not used at all. Instead, he's called Theos, which is the general word for God, or he's called Kyrios, which means Lord. It's important to know that none of these is God's actual divine name. These are titles or a general form of the word God and its usage. Generally, what we do in English to differentiate the two, let's, let's say we put G-O-D. Well, we put either capitalized G-O-D, or if we're talking about a pagan deity, we'll just lowercase the G but you still have that same word there that's used for either or. Now, someone can dance over semantics on this, but these are titles and not his name. These titles were meant to prove a point. There are a lot of titles given to God throughout the scriptures. 
Once again, it's important to know that none of these is God's actual divine name. There have been many throughout history that have made a great deal about these titles, but much of it's made out of ignorance or <laughs> just a willful uh, disregard for Hebrew and Greek language. Oftentimes, these people will write books and try to sell their books and try to be flowery with their language. This is often the case with the neo-evangelical uh, neo circles. When these claims are made and people read their books, people don't really check up on it and they just parrot what other people or teachers and preachers use. And that's unfortunate. We should know what we believe and why we believe it. The same words like El or Elohim, for instance, there's a lot written about those two words. But once again, these same so-called names of God are used for pagan deities as well. The Hebrew words El, Elohim, and the Greek Theos, Kyrios, um, they're used quite often of pagan deities. So it's not exclusively the one true and living God's name. We have to think a little differently about how we perceive what God is doing through history and his word usage, but more on that later. When God revealed himself through the burning bush to Moses, Moses at that point did not know God's divine name. Moses asked in Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it says, quote, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. This is very interesting because the people of Israel, when Moses said this, knew exactly what Moses was talking about when he repeated what God said. They didn't know his actual divine name, but they knew who he was with the, the title, I am. If Moses at this point would have known God's actual name and used it with the people, they would have not responded. Think about that. Because at this time, let's just say, if he used Yahweh, they would have said, who is that? They didn't know his name. The divine name revealed to Moses in our text in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3 was in Hebrew the letters yod hey wow hey or in English Y-H-W-H. In Hebrew, they don't have vowels. Uh, well, they do, but they're, they're just imp they're implied in the consonants, if that makes any sense. Later on in the Masoretic Hebrew, they came out with a vowel pointing to try to show the implied vowels. There are some places in the Old Testament before Moses where the divine name is used. And there's plenty of commentaries that try to make this not look like a contradiction with Exodus 6 and verse 3. They'll say that God was basically not fully known until Moses, but they did know his name. They're referring to passages like, Genesis chapter 21 and verse 33, where it says, quote, And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. End quote. There's no contradiction here. It says the name of the Lord, which at that time was El Shaddai. In our text in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, this clears this up by using the name for El Shaddai. 
Also, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, and he's also the editor. Basically, he wrote God's name in certain places once it was revealed. There's not a problem with this, and it makes perfect sense in how God reveals knowledge through his prophets. When we are reading, we forget we are looking back into history. The entire book of Genesis was Moses writing from God looking back into history. It's also very important not to read through 21st century eyes in, in order to interpret scripture. You have to look at it as God is revealing the plan and through his prophets and, and that will help clear up a lot of confusion. Now, Jesus Christ made a pretty interesting statement about Abraham in the book of John, chapter 8, and verse 56. It says, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. End quote. This is important because I believe he is speaking of the second coming of Christ. That is referenced multiple times in the scriptures as the Lord's day. It is also revealed in many places later in the Old Testament, like the book of Daniel. We get a lot more detail as to how things are going to unfold. We get this picture because Paul said that the cross, the church, and the method of salvation were kept secret from the foundation of the world. This is the reason why the devil was so eager to see Jesus to the cross, because he had no idea that the cross would be the method by which he would be defeated. In the devil's mind... He thought that he thwarted God's plan. The Bible doesn't say this word for word, but I can imagine that as Jesus was on the cross, that the whole host of heaven that fell, the fallen ones, the one third of the host, however many angels that is, were around the cross that day. And they may have for a moment thought that they actually de defeated God. That's astounding because remember, the cross and the method of salvation was kept secret. They had no idea. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been so anxious. I can imagine that they were working through the Pharisees and the people that are around mocking and scorning Christ, just egging the crowd on to really push and have everything done. They had no idea about the resurrection because remember, all that had been revealed at that time was that a Redeemer was going to come. And we were given a small glimpse into that in the book of Revelation and a few of the scriptures in dealing with the second coming of Christ. Hence all the confusion that was going on with the disciples when Jesus was trying to tell them that he was supposed to go to the cross, but they just couldn't believe it because they're envisioning the second coming of Christ. Now going back to John chapter 8 and verse 56, when Jesus said that Abraham was shown his day, we don't know what exactly Abraham was shown, but one thing's for sure, Abraham still didn't know the name of God or his son. The book of Romans chapter 4 and verse 3 says, quote, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. End quote. He didn't need to know God's name. He believed in the I Am. That simple faith is what's talking about. Uh, what's talked about in the book of Hebrews. Back in John 8, this is also the same chapter a few verses later that Jesus references himself as the I am. The Jews knew exactly what he was talking about and who he was referencing back to because that was where Moses 
was told of God that he was the I am. This is also why the Jews picked up stones to try to kill Jesus because they knew exactly what he was trying to say and they thought it blasphemy. Now, as we move along the scriptures, there's going to be a little bit of Hebrew word usage that's going to get pretty interesting. The people of Israel knew the divine name of God up until after the Babylonian captivity. There came a point at which Jewish scribes and priests would only use the term Adonai or Lord when speaking out loud the name of God or even writing it. They thought that the divine name of God was too holy to say out loud. Now, this type of practice still exists today. And this is why, as a mark of symbolism, you may see the letters G-D when it's written in English by uh, Jewish people. The Jews today will also say Hashem or the name in Hebrew when referring to God. Ha is the article the, Shem is the Hebrew word for name. Because of this, as time progressed, we no longer know how to pronounce the name of God. Think about that. The God of all the universe, and we don't even know how to say his name. I have four years of biblical Greek and two years of biblical Hebrew. When I first learned that, it threw me for a loop. I said, how do you lose something like that? Well, there are basically two main ways to pronounce the divine name. You can do it with two syllables and say Yahweh, or with three syllables, Yehovah. There's a lot of literature written on how people think it's pronounced, but it's a fact that no one knows for sure. When we see the word Jehovah in English, we see the letter J, but there is no J sound in Hebrew. The J was pronounced um, as the English letter Y. In Latin and Greek, it was represented by the letter I. So technically, you say Yahweh and Yahovah. The hard J sound came later when the Bible was translated into French and English. When we think about all of that in context, we start to get the idea that God the Father is not concerned with us knowing his divine name. In order that for that to make any sense, we have to understand God's grand master plan as given to us by the scripture. So let's look back at Psalm 138 and verse 2 again. It says, quote, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name, end quote. We see an emphasis on his word in the passage. We have to remember that the plan of God was progressively revealed to his prophets over thousands of years. We have to understand that there is a progression to knowledge that God will reveal and most of the prophets had no clue as to the totality of the grand plan. They simply trusted God and what he said in its place by faith, as the book of Hebrews says, not being able to bear something doesn't necessarily have to do with a person's spirituality. It may be that just God thinks that the knowledge may be too much for that person to handle at the time. Think of it like this. You try to explain an airplane flying through the air to someone in 1000 AD. So we're talking 
after the fall of the Roman Empire by a couple hundred years. Uh, but still, we had some advanced civilization going on during that time. Now, try to explain an airplane to them. It'd be a little difficult. How about going back to 1000 BC, going back 2000 years? That would definitely be extremely difficult. Maybe putting a different spin on what the Apostle John saw in the book of Revelation and what he tried to explain as he saw his visions of the future. The Roman Empire at the time was pretty advanced for that time period, but John is seeing all these things transpire in the future and he's trying to pen it down in a way that makes sense. I want you to keep this in mind though, that very few in the Bible have been shown the far future. We all like to think that we can handle anything, but that's really just our pride. God is outside of time itself, and he sees things play out differently um, than we do. Oftentimes, when the prophets and the apostles were told these things, they had no clue as to the understanding unless they were told specifically. God is very selective with the knowledge that he imparts to man. He gives us bits and pieces through time, but not more than we can handle. Subjects like, for instance, even within the New Testament, uh, we, we see these types of things. For instance, we're to be rewarded at the judgment. But how do those rewards translate into heaven? We're not told, and probably for a good reason, because our minds have a hard time grasping heavenly things. Can you imagine? Uh, God also knows that we have a tendency to just make up crazy doctrines that aren't a part of the scripture. Can you imagine today? Uh, church of the crown of righteousness, church of the crown of, you, you know, soul winning or whatever. I mean, we get kind of weird with these types of things, but God gives us a small glimpse into the judgment of Christians and how we're going to be rewarded or the lack thereof of rewards. Another aspect in the New Testament we're kind of given a glimpse of into is like, how does angelic warfare take place? I mean, do they take casualties? I mean, think about it. Do they, you know, fight and then they come to a point where they just look at their clock and go, all right, I'll see you at uh, five o'clock tomorrow. They <laughs> just, just quit, right? <laughs> I don't know. But what if God were to open our eyes up to the angelic battles? That would be absolutely insane and probably more than our frail human minds could handle. Remember what I said in the introduction about everything that God does has a rhyme and reason to it. One definite fact about the character of God and how he interacts with man is that he is distinctly unique from anything man or the devils try to devise. This is a whole message in itself of what makes God unique, but one of them are, for instance, every other God has an image except for one. <laughs> Basically, there's only one God in the whole of the world's history that claims to be the invisible God, and that is the one of the Judeo-Christian Bible. This is why God punished those in Israel who would even try to make a representation of him. That's pretty fascinating. If you study what makes the God of the Bible unique, you will sure build your faith and know that he's real. Take up that study sometime. Now, God had a specific purpose for the use of his divine name. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God as creator and sovereign ruler over the universe. But it would not be until centuries later when God fulfilled the promises made to these patriarchs by delivering the nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage that the full import of the name Jehovah would become known. 
when you look at the totality of God's ultimate plan, he did not want his divine name stamped upon anything except the nation of Israel. It was going to make them distinctly unique from the rest of the nations around them. Israel served an invisible God who had no images to worship, and that was the only monotheistic religion in the world at that time. God was making a distinct point to stand out from amongst the Gentiles, and that where his name becomes relevant. After the captivity and the promise of the new covenant found in Christ, there wasn't an emphasis to know the name of God the Father. Now, even though the usage for God's title or name shifted to Adonai or El Shaddai even, it's important to know that it's not just any name that can be used. God did show the exactness of his name was to be imprinted upon Israel. And we're going to see that he was not to be called Baal or Zeus or even in our modern time, Alilah or shortened Allah. Why? Because all of these reference specific deities. These are not Yahweh. Now think about it. Why didn't Paul in the book of Acts stand beside the statue of Zeus in Athens? So many statues of gods all around. He could have just gone to the statue of Zeus and tried to make a comparison because Zeus was king of the Greek gods and it represented authority. Why did Paul choose not to use that statue? He instead chose an altar that had no image that was dedicated to the unknown God. Why did Paul choose to do that? There's a few reasons for that right away. No image can represent the God of the universe. Zeus and Yahweh are not the same, and nor can you even compare them, even with the names. What's important is that while Israel and Judah were going through the judgment for their sins of idolatry, when they came back after the captivity, the Jews never again worshipped any other god corporately. That's amazing, actually. They learned from their captivity who God Almighty was. That was all a part of the plan of God. Now, another point to notice is that after the captivity, God released the names of angels in the book of Daniel. If he had released such information before the captivity, it was probably likely that Israel would have worshipped the angels as gods, little g-gods. It's not hard to believe because we see many other religions do that today, like Catholicism and other types of uh, religions like Buddhism and even Islam. It's within man's sinful nature from the very beginning to be idolaters. Now, Satan and the Fallen angelic hosts are jealous of the name of God. What was gr the great sin of Satan? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 14 and verse 14, it says that his pride was the problem and how he wanted to ascend to be like God. Now, that's interesting. He didn't say that he wanted to be stronger than God, but that he just wanted to be like him. It's almost like he knew that he could never surpass his creator. That's fascinating. I would like to also present 
that the pagan deities in man's history are nothing other than the fallen ones trying to be like Yahweh God and have man bow down before them and worship them instead. Even after seeing the miracles of Jesus Christ and his apostles, it was not very long before there were false teachers and false apostles trying to distort what um, Christ had put forth. The Bible calls them wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're motivated by Satan, you know, walking around after the apostles trying to destroy everything. And this is even before the apostles even passed off the scene they arose. Uh, many of the apostles wrote about this. This brings us, though, to the great culmination of God's plan for the redemption of mankind and the vengeance upon the wicked ones. In Psalm 138 and verse 2, remember that it said that God magnified his word above his name. That should cause you to think a little bit further as to not only what his word says, but who is called the word. The title of this podcast is What's in a Name? Well, there is no other name that causes such great offense among the heathen. There is no other name that causes such great offense where the person half spits out his name. While God the Father did not see fit to make sure that his name was pronounced right among his people, there was only one name he emphasized that man had to get right in order to obtain salvation. And that name is Jesus Christ. The book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, quote, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. End quote. Where Israel had Yahweh specifically stamped upon her to paint the picture of the Creator, Jesus Christ was to be the name stamped upon the church. Pictures are very important to God, and the imagery God paints is very specific. Think about Moses messing up the picture in the wilderness when he struck the rock out of anger instead of speaking to the rock like he was told by God. The picture was supposed to be about Christ, but he messed it up and he was judged and he was judged very harshly because God takes his imagery very, very seriously. Christ is called the word of God. In the book of John, chapter 1, and verse 1, it says, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. End quote. Speaking of the return of Christ, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and verse 13 says, quote, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. End quote. Now that's pretty fascinating. The name Jesus Christ is just an English transliteration of Iesos Christos in Greek. Iesos Christos is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Yeshua HaMashiach, which literally means Joshua the Messiah. It gets better from here. Yeshua or Joshua means Yahweh saves. Altogether, you can make it read here, Yeshua HaMashiach means Yahweh saves through his Messiah. That's astounding. Imagery is so very important to God. There were so many cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and these random online cults 
that don't understand Hebrew and Greek nor the historical context when they look at the meaning of Jesus' name. And people get sucked into these groups. We say Jesus today because that's an English transliteration. It's the same thing. It's the same person. You're not making him sound like some other god or deity. Don't allow these fools to trick you with their wordplay. And you know what? It's almost like as if God had a plan all along and how he works with man's redemption. Who could possibly think that Jesus' name was by some random choice? Of all the names that he could have been called in the beginning of the Gospels, why was he called Yeshua or Joshua or Jesus? His name means that he will save us as the Messiah. That's important. Remember, imagery is so very important to God. God is disciplined enough to see his plan through to the very end, all throughout thousands of years of man's history. And even though Satan tries to distort the plan of God, Satan always comes out looking like the fool. With the grand culmination of Christ and the salvation of mankind, we see this grand redemption story and the book of Revelation being the final chapter to this grand plan. What is in a name? What kind of power is held with this name? The power of God and the power to change the world. Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. I want to thank you for listening. And be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Please take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in Our Mighty Fortress.